Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 23rd chapter. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of the Lord. What are we doing today? I mean, doesn't it seem kind of a little weird? This is Christ the King Sunday. Why are we reading about Jesus' death, his crucifixion? Shouldn't we be at the empty tomb? Shouldn't we be at the mountain where Jesus was taken up gloriously into heaven? Shouldn't we be somewhere in the book of Revelation where heaven is the throne of Jesus and the earth is his footstool? Well, just as Easter is empty without Good Friday, by the way, not Black Friday, please don't mix those two up, right? Just as Easter is empty without Good Friday, so too is our understanding of who God is and where that leads our lives. Without seeing Jesus on the most unlikely of thrones, on the cross. Crosses, we know, are places of suffering and of death. I know we wear gold ones around our necks oftentimes, or we wear them in in worship as signs of this this place of, of glory for God. But they are places of suffering and death. And and Luke doesn't focus so much, though, on what a lot of kind of misguided Hollywood producers do on the physical suffering that leads up to Jesus' crucifixion. And the suffering itself, he focuses more on the crucifixion's work to shame and to humiliate. Because that's the power of crucifixion from the empire, is to shame and to humiliate the the things that we humans fear most. And the very thing that Jesus takes upon himself, the, the shame and the insult there, on display. The key here in Luke, in this crucifixion story, is whether or not Jesus is guilty or innocent, whether he is unrighteous or whether he truly is righteous. Because that answer determines for us whether we are celebrating today Christ the King Sunday 
or Jesus the insane criminal Sunday. Whether he is unrighteous or whether he is righteous determines that for us. And by all logical reason, just taking this moment by itself without knowing the end of the story, for those who are witnessing here the crucifixion, by all logical reason and by the definition of the empire and its power, Jesus is an insane and blasphemous criminal. Ridiculous claims that he has made. But maybe not if we take a wider view. If we look back into the first reading that we had today, the shepherd imagery is helpful to us, I think. Notice how God promises to a people who are afflicted with terrible rulers, bad kings, as you said there, Jack, um, again and again that, that God makes this promise to raise up shepherds, to use that imagery again of, of a shepherd, plural, shepherds for his people, ongoing rule of the branch of David, But then there's a shift in that last paragraph where God says, I will raise up a shepherd because I kind of know how you humans are, right? These kings that I promised for you are probably going to turn bad as they do. So God says, I will raise up a shepherd, the shepherd, singular, to save the people. In our gospel, we see that shepherd. We see that shepherd on a cross giving up a life that he does indeed have the power to save. If you notice in our gospel for today, all of these insults that are hurled at Jesus really within them have these kind of confessions of faith, of confessions of, who, of what Jesus' identity really is. They're kind of turned ironic or turned sarcastic as insults and derision. But if you notice, it's in there. Those who deride him, the leaders actually say, he saved others. Well, yeah, he did. But then they say, let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is the king of the Jews. But what they want is to see As evidence for this, the one thing Jesus can't do and still be the Messiah, the King, the Chosen One. He cannot act selfishly. They want to see it for themselves. They want that selfishness. The one criminal to one side of Jesus wants to be saved himself. But Jesus can't do that. He can't save himself and still be the King. Instead, in order that we here who are gathered here today and, and all people who are, were before us and will come after us, that they might be saved, he gives up his life. And in so doing, he gives salvation to all. What is the image of the shepherd that we carry around? We're, we aren't exposed to shepherds very often, probably. Some of you may have traveled and seen shepherds, maybe been stuck in traffic behind some shepherds. I've seen that on TV at least before, or pictures. But is the image we carry of that the predator comes for the sheep, and the shepherd says, I'm too important, and puts the sheep sheep in front of him, sacrifices them in order to save himself? No, of course not. Is the image that the predator comes for the sheep, and the shepherd is very sympathetic to their suffering? Nope, that's not quite complete for us either, is it? 
Nor image is this, the image that God paints for us and that we see on the cross is that the predator comes for the sheep and the shepherd gives his life to save theirs. And we can carry that imagery even further, really, especially as we look upon Jesus on the cross and note that it is the sheep who have actually invited the the predator over for dinner. And yet still the shepherd stands in front of and sacrifices himself instead of seeing one of them lost. This is why Christ the King Sunday is at the cross, at the place where Jesus' action on our behalf leads him to say, it is accomplished, it is finished. The promise is realized for you. Yes, Jesus' death and resurrection go together. They aren't separate events, so to speak. They're really one complete event. But the cross is the throne where all of what Luke has been leading us to comes to a head. Here is where Jesus casts the mighty down from their thrones and uplifts the lowly. Here is where the blind receive their sight and the oppressed are set free. Here is where the abundant forgiveness of a merciful God is showered upon the suffering and even upon the guilty. My Lord and my God, even those who crucify Jesus... Even those who put him to death and are completely unrepented, even they are forgiven in the midst of their horrific and unjust crime. And the criminal who gets it, the one who understands, who sees, is like this this flashing invitation for all of us to see. I mean, seriously, how how does he get it in this moment? He looks on what logically seems like this failed Messiah, He's hanging there. He's, he's suffering. He's shamed. He's under the same sentence as this man. And somehow he sees a king. Somehow he sees one who, even in his hour of death, has the power to give a promise beyond even what the criminals asked. You know what he asked? He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and Jesus says, well, I can do you one better. <laughs> Infinitely better. Today you will be with me in paradise. That phrase is now. It is immediate. The promise is now. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This kind of leads me back to Jeremiah once again, this this imagery of, of shepherds. God promises leaders, remember plural, and then ultimately God promises a leader, singular, a king, a king who will rule like a good shepherd should. In light of what that one Shepherd has done for us. I'm left wondering, though, how to respond. I mean, being a Christian, in part, means to comprehend that God is found in the suffering of the world. That God understands it. That God experiences it fully. That God takes it into himself in the crucifixion. But being Christ-like is, is taking that promise, that understanding, and doing something with it using it to combat suffering in our world, being uncomfortable when we see suffering and injustice in our world, having it disquiet our lives because it doesn't match with the king we serve. Now, I know all this king language is kind of outdated, right? I mean, we don't use king language anymore. I mean, that's proven by the failure of shows like Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, obvious, you know, box office bus. (laughs) We do. We kind of seem to be kind of culturally uh, enamored by, by, 
by kings and, and how they rule and who's going to win. I know it was a big disappointment in Game of Thrones. I tried to watch a season during my, my uh, a little bout with pneumonia. I got through one season and I got bored. But I guess it was a big deal for a lot of people. It's a disappointing end, though. That's what I've heard. I won't spoil it because I don't know what happened. But, uh, <laughs> but we're kind of obsessed with that. But regardless of all of that, I think what we can walk away with today is that we live in the reign of God now. Now, maybe, maybe it, it isn't so much that our obsession is with the kings in these stories or the rulers in the stories, but ultimately this desire that we have, this longing for living under a righteous and hopeful reign of justice. We look for that. We long for that. Maybe our obsession isn't with the kings themselves, but what they offer us if they are just. We want that peaceful paradise kingdom. And here's the thing. That's exactly what we have in Jesus. So often we look at the world or we, or we even look at our own lives and we see death and we see shame and we see failure. We see disease and division and violence. And all of that is real. Please don't hear me standing up here and saying that God somehow denies all of that. No, God takes that into himself. He enters into that fully. But the promise of, the promise of God in Christ, the hope that God gives us in Christ is real-er going to be a new word in Wikipedia tomorrow, I swear. It's real-er, okay? It's more real, and we carry. We carry that promise around with us. We get to proclaim a hope and a vision that doesn't always seem to make sense in light of the now. But in the midst of all those cries about how there can be so much suffering in the world, how can there be a just God with so much suffering? We can kind of turn that, I think, and look at that and answer boldly, yeah, indeed, there is much suffering. Yet how do we deserve such love and forgiveness and new life in the midst of a broken world that we're pretty guilty in creating? It's kind of interesting because, ironically, it's often the privilege to fail to see God at work in the difficulties of life and doubt God because of the suffering they see sometimes at a distance, or maybe experience themselves. Maybe we're invited to see through the eyes of this criminal today to give us guidance for what to do with all of this, how to see Jesus as, as someone who makes us vulnerable and open to the, continue the joy of offering our lives for the sake of others, Finding a sense of meaning and of purpose that reflects the reality of King Jesus' reign in which we live today in paradise. Maybe we have that opportunity, actually, as well, as the criminal does, to live in that paradise today, holding out the promise we've been given until as many as we can possibly reach are connected to this hope, to this King to this promise, this king we call Lord and God. Amen.